I guess uh, I guess uh, more is is caught than taught, right? In the in the household, so. She's picking up on some things. Okay, uh, where's Lizzie tonight? Lizzie, are you here? Lizzie's going to read for us. We're going to look at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, all the way through chapter 5, verse 10. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he, as he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. <laughs> Sorry. Good try. <laughs> in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he had suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Excellent. This is God's word. Let me pray for us again. Father, we uh, come to you tonight, and as we just sang about helping our unbelief, we pray that you would help us, Lord, you would help us where we are tonight. Uh, Father, all of us are prone to disbelieve your goodness. All of us are, are prone to disbelieve your presence. And we pray, Father, that you would persuade us tonight that you are here, you are among us, that you are good and you are trustworthy. And we pray, Father, that whatever might be crowding our heads, whatever might be capturing our hearts, whatever might be distracting us, that you would remove it and that you would help us to see Jesus, the great high priest. And we pray this in his precious name. Amen. You know, um, if you don't know by now, you're going to figure out soon enough that life is very hard. And, and, and some, of you, some of you are experiencing that right now, and, and I don't have to persuade you that life is very hard. That it's full of disappointments, it's full of heartache, uh, it, it's sometimes full of tragedy. And it comes upon us in surprising ways. When we least expect it, and it hits us so hard that sometimes we feel like we got the wind knocked out of us, and we can't catch our breath back. Uh, when, I, when, I, when I look back on my own life, uh, there's a lot of things I could look to as major sources of, su of suffering. Uh, my family went through a humongous financial devastation where we lost our house, we lost our car, um, all, all sorts of crazy things happened. And I, and I experienced firsthand the crushing weight of divorce, having, having your parents get divorced. And I know what that's like. And not only that, but later in life, after I was married, to Mindy, we actually um, had to experience sitting at someone's bedside and watching them die. 
And I'll, I'll never be the same after experiencing that. It has opened up a place in me that I, I, didn't, I didn't know existed. A feeling of empathy and emotion for, for people who go through that kind of suffering. And you see, you might not have experienced that in your life. But you will one way or another. And I bet everyone in here has some story of life. And I know if you're like me, it leaves you longing for someone who identifies, for someone who understands. You long for that. But you see, there's another aspect to the hardness of life, and it's not just what happens to us, but it's what we do to ourselves. Because there's a lot of things in my life for which I'm very ashamed. Some of those things a lot of people know about. You guys don't know where I'm from. Uh, you don't know the town uh, that I grew up in. But if you met people from there, there would be stories about David Jones to tell. And they're things of which I'm ashamed. There are other things which very few people know about. Maybe my wife, maybe some of my closest friends. And then there's some things I don't want anyone to know about. Except my closest companion. And, and, and there's this sense of shame over things that I've done. And it leaves me longing as it leaves you longing, I'm, I'm sure, no doubt, it leaves you longing for somebody who not just understands and identifies, but someone who can cleanse. Someone who can come and wipe away the stain. And there's this longing for one who understands and identifies, and there's this longing for one who can wipe away the stain, who can make you clean. And central to the, to the claims of Christianity is the claim that Jesus is the one who both understands and who cleanses. That's right at the heart of the gospel. And you see, this community to which the book of Hebrews was written, it was written to a group of people, to a congregation, who were in danger of turning away from that. That they began to, to question, because of what they were experiencing in their life, whether he was really good, whether he was really present, whether he really understood. And they were also looking at their own life and saying, maybe we need something else to cleanse us. Maybe we need something else to prove that we're okay. And one of the temptations for them, because many of them came out of Judaism, having seen Jesus as the fulfillment of all the hopes and the promises of Israel, saying maybe we need to go back to the priestly system, to where we could go and we could have someone concretely in front of our face tell us, you're okay. It's been done. You've been cleansed. Someone to hug us. Someone to pat us on the back. Someone to say, I understand and I identify. And the author of Hebrews over and over again has been directing us to one place to prevent this turning away or turning back or drifting. And that's to the greatness of Jesus. Now some of you might not have been here for the past four weeks, five weeks, six weeks, and, and you haven't heard all this, but basically Hebrews has said, look, Jesus is greater than. That's what this book is all about. The mathematical equation, Jesus is greater than, right? He's, he's the greatest word that God has spoken to us. He's greater than the angels that some were tempted to worship and, and prize in that day. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than Joshua because he brings a greater rest, as we've looked at over the past couple of weeks. And tonight we're looking at this theme of Jesus is our great high priest. Now I want to approach uh, these verses in, in three ways. I want, to, I want to look at why we need a priest. I want to look at how Jesus is our great high priest and then what sort of response is called for Okay, that's where we're going. So let's look first at this. Why do we need a priest? Well, the reason why I picked up verses 12 and 13 from last week is because it says something in here that 
honestly is a little bit unsettling. If you look closely, it says that God's Word comes in and strikes down like a scalpel slicing into our lives to the core of who we are. And it exposes the thoughts and intentions of our heart. And then in verse 13, No creature is hidden from God's sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. You know, that, th- this is almost one of the most offensive claims of Christianity. That God sees. That God sees. God knows. God stares down into the core of our being. And knows us to the bottom. Have you, have you ever had that experience where you caught someone staring at you? You know, when you're, maybe that's happened tonight, maybe that's happened in the last few minutes, where you look around and you realize that person's staring at you, and it's, it is so uncomfortable. Because you're like, I'm under the gaze. Somebody's seeing me, they're watching me. And immediately you start to think, well, first you might think, that's creepy, right? But then, then you start to think about yourself and you say, what were they looking at? Were they looking at my nose? I mean, I, I, I know it's not where it's supposed to be on my face. Were they, were they looking at my eyes? They're too big for my head. Maybe they were staring at my ears. My ears are so small compared to the rest of my body. Maybe, maybe they were looking at my crooked teeth. And you know that feeling. And you know that game you used to play when you were in junior high? The stare down, right? Where you stare face to face with people and it's who's going to look away first. And people do the trick of, you know, looking at different parts of the face, moving their eyes around because there's something unbearable about someone right in front of your face looking at you directly. And people will describe it and say, most humans cannot bear being looked at for more than four seconds. Because we feel under the gaze. We feel exposed. And when you look at this passage, it says we're always under God's gaze. He sees every single thing. Nothing is hidden. There's no escape. There's no place you can run from his gazing eye. And that is frankly a little unsettling. Uh, There's an author named Annie Dillard. And uh, she, she, she tells this story of when she was little that her parents got her neighbor from, I think it was across the street, Miss White, to dress up as Santa Claus. Now, Andy Dillard had heard about Santa Claus growing up, but she'd never seen Santa Claus. And Miss White shows up at the door dressed in a Santa costume, and her parents think she's just going to run into Santa Claus's arms, that this is just going to be the most significant moment in her life, one of those thrilling experiences that she'll always remember. But instead, she screams, and she ran up to her bedroom. And she says the reason why is because she had been told over and over again that someone you never see, but who always sees you and knows whether you've been bad or good, is walking through that door. And you see, she had that experience of someone who knows me, who sees to the core of me, and that is a little bit frightening. It's unsettling. And when you look at these verses a little more closely, it says that not only does he see our lives, there's not secret compartments that we can hide, but it says he sees our hearts. He discerns the thoughts and intentions of our lives. Now, I know for some of us, we hear the phrase, God sees your heart, and we say, oh, you know, that's, that's sweet. You know, isn't that wonderful? God sees our heart. You know, God looks on the heart. There, there. You know, comfort. To me... That freaks me out because my heart has done things my hands haven't gotten to yet, right? And yours has too. And it could be lustful fantasies or it could be strangling that annoying person who sits next to you in your whatever class. Your heart 
is always roaming about doing things that your hands just haven't gotten around to doing yet. And to know that God sees our hearts is actually a little bit frightening. And it says he knows the thoughts and the intentions. Not just the secret fantasies, but the motivations. How many times have you been praised and applauded for something that you did because it was nice, kind, generous, loving, service, but you know you were doing it because you wanted that applause, that you wanted that respect, you wanted that admiration, that your motivations were completely incongruous with what the act appeared to be. See, God goes down and He sees every bit of it. And then it says here in verse 13, He will call us to account. He's going to call us to account. Now, some of you might not be unsettled by this. Maybe you look at me and you think, okay, you're like a totally insecure, you know, whacked out person, all freaked out about this. But let me kindly suggest to you that maybe the problem is you have a pathetic view of God's holiness or a very overgenerous view of your own heart. Now, I say that as a fellow sinner, as someone who's prone to pump my, myself up, someone who's prone to minimize God's standards. And when you think about Jesus, he comes and he says, look, what God really demands of us is to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, I get a big fat F there because there's virtually no moment in my life where I love him entirely, where I've loved him completely, where I've loved him with everything that I am, all that I am, all the time. And I certainly don't love my neighbor as myself. And so when I think about God's gaze, I start thinking, I'm undone. And I feel a little vulnerable. I feel naked. And in fact, the words that are used here are exposed and naked. This word exposed is, is actually it's pretty cool because it was used in the first century to describe uh, the, the, the neck of a sacrificial victim when it was pulled up before the, the slice. But it was also used for a wrestler when the throat was grabbed and they were thrown. Now remember, in, that, in those days, they wrestled naked. Okay, I don't know why, but they wrestled in the nude. And they're getting grabbed by the throat and thrown. I mean, that's exposed, if you ask me. Okay, And that's, that's the image that's being used here. You want to hide, there's nowhere to hide. You're naked, you're exposed. He sees it all. And the crazy thing about it is, is when God made us, when He made humanity, He made us to live with freedom to live without shame, with no need to hide, without fear. Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed in the garden. That's a beautiful picture. Fully knowing each other, fully seeing each other. And that's what many of you long for in marriage, is someone to see you in the physical sight of you nude is only a representation of the entire exposure that you want to experience for someone who loves you and is committed to you. And that's what God intended for us is to be known and loved. And yet the moment sin enters the picture, Adam and Eve run to hide. And they're looking for coverings. Symbolic of this fear of being under the gaze. Of being exposed. And we have been running ever since. And I think this points out something to us that's, that's really vital to grasp. Is that sin in the biblical, biblical conception is not just behavioral. It's not just things we do. It's a condition. It's a condition of being having your heart disoriented, out, out of line with what God has designed. And so there's a sense of shame. Who doesn't have it? Who doesn't want to hide certain parts of your life? And yet God sees all of it. And, remember we're talking about why we need a priest. God made provision. 
In the Old Testament, God gave a gift to his people. And the gift was the gift of priests. Now, when I, when I use that word, I know that in our modern context, it has a lot of connotations that are troublesome for some of you. That when you hear, hear that word, you think of clergy of all denominations, all denominations who've been guilty of the vilest sexual scandals, uh, embezzlement of money, stealing, uh, power grabs, all sorts of things. But remember, in the biblical design, it was the kindness of God. And these, I'm going to skip over verses 14 and 16 and come back to those. But when you look into chapter 5, we see that priests were appointed by God in verse 1. They were chosen by Him for this task. It wasn't a do-it-yourself religion. Nobody just got to choose and take that honor on himself. But they were appointed by God. And they were appointed, it says, to represent. To represent the people before God. And one of, the, one of their tasks of representation was to go and to offer sacrifices. Sacrifices that cleansed from sin. And on one day a year, there was a ritual called the Day of Atonement. And on that day, the temple or the tabernacle was, was made so that there was these outer courts that people could come and worship in. And then there were some inner courts. And then there was an inner, inner court called the Holy of Holies. The place where the mercy seat was. The place where the Ark of the Covenant was. And no one could go in. There was, a, there was a curtain there. No one could go in but the high priest on the Day of Atonement. And he entered in with fear and trembling to offer a sacrifice on behalf of the people. And it was a, it was a very powerful image. But it was also a, it was a kindness of God because it was meant to design, it was designed to say, listen, on this day you are going to see, you are going to know that your sins are cleansed. Now, there's something about this, though, that we have to see. Is that that whole system was partial and provisional. It's like a blueprint. Like if you're going to build a house, you need a blueprint. You can't just start going and stacking stuff up. You need some plan or idea. But the blueprint itself is, is not the house. It's meant to point to the reality of the house. And the author of Hebrews is coming at this issue of priesthood and saying, Listen, all that was going on, and the Old Testament and the Hebrew Scriptures was partial and provisional. It was the blueprint for how you're going to understand what Jesus has come to do for you. It was all pointing forward to an, in anticipatory fashion to what Jesus would come and do. Because there was one problem with the priests. They were sinners just like you and me. And it says in verse 3, they had to offer sacrifices for their own sins. That they themselves were broken. They were infected with the disease. That they were under the gaze and found wanting. And yet God used them for a season until the coming of the one who knew no sin. It all pointed forward to Jesus, who is the great high priest. Now, let's look at what makes Jesus our great high priest. Because when you look at these next verses in chapter 5, verses 6 through 10, we see what makes him the great high priest is that he's qualified for it. You know, some of you might be trying to get into the Olympics. There's always people at Stanford that are going to the Olympics for something. Uh, there's, you know, 40-some-odd people, I think, years I saw. And everybody's watching the, the qualifying rounds to want to see, can you make it into the Olympics? Do you have what it takes? It's a frightening moment because maybe you're not going to cut it, maybe you will. Or some of you right now are thinking about graduation or moving on from, from grad school and you're, and you're about to do job interviews and you've got your resume together and you're wondering, am I going to be qualified to be accepted and received 
on the basis of what I've done. But you see, what's said about Jesus here is that He is the one who is qualified to be the great high priest. In verses 5 and 6 it says, He was appointed by God the Father for this role. He was chosen for this task. This is why He came, is to be our great high priest. And then it says in verses 7 through 8 that He was obedient through suffering. Have you ever thought about Jesus in, in, in these terms? Jesus actually experienced the full breadth and weight of humanity. Endured temptation, experienced the cost of obedience, and in fact, it says here, listen to these words, this is a little bit startling, that He was made perfect in verse 9. Now, that does not mean Jesus was morally imperfect and then He became perfect because He did enough good things. Perfection in, in Greek actually means to bring to completion. And Jesus had to live a life of perfection to bring to completion God's design for Him to be the faithful high priest. And as one who dwelled fully in the flesh, who became, took on humanity, He had to experience the full weight of obedience. The full cost of obedience. Enduring suffering. Look how it's described in verse 7. In the days of His flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications to the Father like a priest would, with loud cries and tears. Is that your picture of Jesus? High priest interceding with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Now you might be saying, wait, he was heard? Jesus died. Yeah, but that was part of his priestly work is to come and die. And yet God raised him Showing him to be victorious. Showing him to be the faithful, obedient priest. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus is about to go to the cross, that he is sweating drops of blood and he's crying out to the Father. He's saying, if possible, let this cup pass from me. Feeling the weight of what he was about to do. And yet he says, not my will, but thy will be done. Jesus coming to be the faithful high priest to do something on our behalf. In conquering death, God shows it in His resurrection. Saves Him from death. Raises Him from the dead as the victorious King. Now, you, you, you might look at that and you say, okay, that's great. He did something for me. But, you know, Hebrews doesn't stop there. Going back to verses 14 through 16, Jesus, the faithful high priest, He's not just qualified for that role, but He's the one who can meet us in our weaknesses. Because it says in verse 15 that we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He's experienced the cost of obedience. He knows what it's like to live in the sorrows of this world. Th think about what he experienced. Rejection, betrayal, uh, crucifixion, obviously, is, is a big one. But you know, there's some that we might not notice like this. Jesus probably lost a parent. Have you ever thought about that? Because when he's on the cross, Mary is the only one there, and John is there to help comfort her. Joseph is nowhere to be found. Joseph, who is his legal father, his legal guardian, whom the Bible says was a righteous man, so it's very unlikely that he left them. It's more likely that he died. And Jesus experienced that. He knows the sorrows. He knows the frailties of life. He knows what it's like to live inside human experience. And it makes him a sympathetic, understanding high priest. And not only that, but it says he was tempted in every way. 
He knows our temptations. He knows the experience of being tempted with things. Uh, uh, the, the evil one tempted him in the wilderness. You know, we're, we talked about how Christian life is life in the wilderness. Well, Jesus had an experience in the wilderness where the devil comes to him and says, I'm going to give you all that the Father has promised to you. And it's going to be by an entirely different path. Not the path of suffering, but the path of ease. Jesus had that temptation right in front of his faith to say, you can have the Garden of Eden without the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus says, No. He knows what it's like to be tempted. But it says, yet without sin. Now for some of you, we've talked about this a couple of weeks ago when we got the first hint of Jesus our high priest. You say, well if he didn't sin, then he doesn't understand temptation. But you see, that, that's like saying, if I go out to run a marathon and I make it one mile, and you go out to make a marathon and you make it 26 miles, that's what a marathon is, right? You can tell I never run marathons, but so one mile might be about right for how far I could get. It would be silly of me to say, you don't know how hard a marathon is. Because see, I quit. I know what it's really like. You see, Jesus endured the full brunt of temptation all the way through its fullest intensity, never failing. He's the marathon runner. He knows what it's like all the way to the end to bear up under it. You and I cave in. We, We don't understand it as well as he did. And you might say, yeah, but if he, if, he doesn't, if he doesn't cave in, then he can't be sympathetic to us. Well, you know what? Sin actually makes us more self-absorbed, makes us more selfish and focused on ourselves. The one without sin can actually intercede, can connect with us, because he, he is laying down his life for us. He's giving himself for us in a selfless fashion. He can be our sympathetic high priest who knows our weaknesses, who knows our temptations, and can sustain us. And he did what no other priest could do. He passed through the heavens, it says in verse 14. You know that picture I gave you of the Day of Atonement where the priest would come in through the outer court, through the inner court, into the Holy of Holies and offer a sacrifice? Well, the picture of Jesus is after his death and his resurrection. He didn't pass through an earthly temple or tabernacle. He went into the heavens, the place of transcendence, the very presence of God the Father. And he goes right there to the mercy seat to offer up his sacrifice for sins. We're going to come back to that theme later in the book of Hebrews. But that's the picture of Jesus, the great and faithful high priest. And jumping back to chapter 5, verse 9, it says, because of what he did, he has become the source of salvation to all who obey him. Now, some of you hear that phrase, you say, oh, there's the catch, that's it, all who obey him. Be good, Jesus is going to love you. Be good, you're going to be accepted, you're going to find favor. But you see, saying to all who obey Him is just identifying who belongs to Him. Obedience is one of the marks of belonging to Jesus. It is not the source of our salvation because it says right here, Jesus is the source of our salvation. Jesus is the one who accomplished it. And as our great high priest, He's the one who can identify with our sorrows and He's also the one who cleanses us from our sin. The two things we long for in this broken world. Now, how are we supposed to respond to something like that? This. We need a priest. We're under the gaze. (laughs) We need someone to come and cleanse us. Jesus is the great high priest who offers himself for us. And how are we to respond? Well, I want you to listen to this really in a focused way. The only commands so far in the whole book of Hebrews have been commands like this. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Don't drift away. 
They don't add up to try harder. They add up to trust more. And you find the same thing here. Going back to verses 14 through 16, right in the middle of this passage, chapter 4, you got, you got two commands, and here's what they are. Let us hold firm, and let us draw near. That's the response it's called for. Let us hold firm in verse 14. Hold fast to the confession of faith. Hold fast to Jesus. Don't drift. You know, the truth is, you're not, we're going to hold on to something in life. We're going to seek safety or refuge in something. Something that makes us feel clean. It does a priestly work in us. It might be being well-liked. It might be being respected and admired. It might be being honored. It might be in the arms of a lover. But we run to these things. We hold on to these things to say, tell me I'm okay. That I'm clean. That it's been wiped away. And we long for it. And Hebrews is saying, no, Hold on to Jesus, the great high priest. He's passed through the heavens and he's made the ultimate sacrifice. He's the one who can completely cleanse you from whatever stain, any stain. No matter how much, no matter how bad, no matter how deep, Jesus is the one. And it's a call to persevere in the face of marginalization or ridicule or whatever. Hold fast. But you know, the other command is very sweet as well. It says, draw near in verse 16. Hey, dear friends, this is an invitation to intimacy with God. It's like God has rolled out the welcome mat for you. And He's shouting to you, Draw near to me. Come in. Fellowship with me. I'm here for you. And it says, we, we, we want to draw near to the throne of grace. Not the throne of judgment, but the throne of grace. You see, the gaze that we all fear absolute gaze that sees us down at the bottom in Christ is a gaze of love. It's a gaze of favor. It's a gaze of welcome. And it even says we're supposed to come with confidence. Not doubt. We're supposed to come boldly. He sees you and He knows you, yes. But He loves you and He receives you in Christ. And He's saying, come, won't you come? And He even adds, to find mercy and receive grace in your time of need. Whatever it is, if it's in the midst of the greatest sorrow you've ever experienced, and you wonder if you're alone, if anyone identifies, if anyone understands, he says, come, there's mercy and grace for you. Or if you're in the deepest shame and humiliation that you've ever known, he says, come, there is mercy, there is grace for you. See, friends, this passage is all about this. God sees us perfectly. And the real question for us is, is what are we going to do about being seen? What are we going to do about it? We, we can try to run away. We can try to hide. We can try to hold on to other things. But if we're running away, have you stopped and asked yourself, what am I running to? What am I running to? Where am I seeking this cleansing, this understanding, this identification? The opposite side is, we can run to Him. See, He sees us, but we're going to run to Him in our need. Now, you might say to yourself, you might say, but I'm so deeply ashamed. He covers your shame. You might say, I'm so weak. He helps you in your weakness. He's the great high priest. You might say, I'm so tired. He sustains you with His strength. You say, I, I feel so guilty. He covers you with His righteousness. You see, that's the great high priest saying, draw near. 
Hold fast. Draw near. Jesus is the great high priest. So what will you do about being seen? Will you run to him or will you run away? Run from him or run into his arms. Jesus, the great high priest, the one who identifies, he knows, he understands. And the one who cleanses, the one who wipes away the stain. That's good news. Let's pray together. Father, we uh, come to you and we thank you uh, for the the powerful pictures in your word. uh, The beautiful symbols and imagery that drive home to our hearts, Lord, that, that honestly are, are, are sometimes just very hardened to this. Some of us have heard it over and over again, and uh, it's not getting through. And some of us, Father, have, are just hearing it for the first time. We have lots of questions. But, Father, wherever we might be, we pray that you would draw us near, and that you would, you would keep us near, and that you would help us to see Jesus as the great high priest. Help us to hold fast to him. Help us to take advantage of what is ours in Christ. Help us to know the love and favor that we have in the gospel. And help us to see uh, that he identifies with our sorrows. And he can cleanse us from all stain. And we pray this in his name. Amen. You guys want to stand and sing our last song before the